Just bow your heads with me as we go to the Lord in prayer one more time to ask his blessing on the public preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Lord, we confess our ignorance of your revelation of yourself apart from your spirit shining into our hearts with the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. We don't know as we ought to know. We would not know anything of you had you not revealed yourself, given us your word and poured out your spirit on us to interpret that word to us as it testifies to Jesus. So we pray now, would you teach us afresh, pour out your spirit on us now to help us understand, to help us feel as you want us to feel, to think as you want us to think, to do as you want us to do. Help us to love what you love and hate what you hate. And help us to realize afresh all that you have done for us in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Is anyone too bad to be saved? Sometimes we ask that question privately in our hearts with reference to ourselves. We wonder if we're the one person in the world that might actually be too bad to be saved. We think we've sinned far too great a sin or sinned far too many times for Jesus to want us. Then again, we also may ask that question about other people. For some of us, we look at sinners who are so dirty and we think, how could such a dirty person ever become clean? How could such an angry person, angry at God, angry at people who believe in Jesus, how could such a person ever be reconciled to God in Christ? But there are also some of us who look at sinners who present themselves as squeaky clean in their self-made righteousness, and we think, how could such a self-preoccupied, self-confident, self-impressed, pompous, nauseating person ever become humble enough just to recognize their own need for mercy in Christ? Well, if you'll turn with me to Acts 9, verses 1 through 19, we'll meet the Apostle Paul before he was known as Paul, before he was saved, when he was known as Saul. And he was the self-righteous type, a religious leader who thought he was doing the religious world and even God a favor by arresting Christians for the thought crime of believing that Jesus was God incarnate crucified and now risen from the dead. But Jesus had mercy on him, as we will see this morning. And if Jesus had mercy on a self-righteous soul like Saul, then there is hope for us all. We'll read the story piecemeal, and then we'll draw a few applications. Chapter 7, we'll remember we saw Stephen stoned in Jerusalem, which led to the scattering of Christians in chapter 8, Luke took us up to Samaria to see Philip's ministry there, preaching and doing miracles. Then we followed Philip down south past Gaza for the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch and back up the coast to Caesarea. And Luke now takes us back to the scene of the scattering in Jerusalem, where we find Saul still threatening Jesus' disciples with Stephen's fate, murder. Christians have spread outside Jerusalem. Now Saul applies for written authorization from the priesthood to go and arrest any Christians he finds worshiping in the synagogues of Damascus and to extradite them back to Jerusalem for prosecution. Men or women, doesn't matter. Theologians also point out that the word murder there in verse 1 associates Saul 
with Stephen's critique of Jewish leadership in Acts 7.52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed, they murdered those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you now have betrayed and murdered. So Saul is still on the warpath against Christians. He's the one, remember, who was taking everybody's coats at the coat check at Stephen's martyrdom. He is an angry, violent critic of Christ. Saul is not low-hanging fruit. He's not reading his Bible on his chariot in Isaiah 53 and wondering who's the prophet talking about, himself or someone else. That is not Saul. He is a leader in oppressing Christ's church. He is an enemy of Jesus and all things that have to do with Jesus and all people that associate themselves with Jesus. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belongings of the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. So verse 3, he takes an honorage to Damascus looking for Christians who are corrupting Jewish synagogues there. He intends to lead them back to Jerusalem for prosecution. Saul is busy doing Saul. He's doing his thing his way. And he thinks he's the righteous one doing it. He's almost to Damascus when out of nowhere the risen Lord shines out at him in a blinding light so bright it knocks Paul off of his feet down to the ground and he hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus knows, names, identifies Saul before Saul can identify Jesus. He can't even identify Jesus, much less pursue him. Saul knows that this is a superior, a super superior talking to him. So he calls him Lord, but he doesn't know exactly who he's talking to. So Saul simply says, who are you, Lord? Because I'm not used to being shined at like that. Saul was not seeking to know Jesus like the Ethiopian eunuch. Saul was seeking to nix the movement that bore Jesus' name. And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now stop right there. That sentence calls for judgment on Saul. I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now if this were a novel that you and I were writing it might go a lot different in the next verse. I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. And now, I'm going to cap you. I'm going to end you. You're done. This is over. I'm going to drop the hammer. Vengeance is mine, and I am here to exact it on you. Verse 6 then comes as a surprise. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but... Rise, enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Wow. You are persecuting the creator of all things. You are persecuting the risen redeemer of God's people, the sovereign son of man, the king of God's kingdom. You are persecuting the very one who created you. Be that as it may, 
Get back on your feet. Go on into Damascus and wait for further instruction. That is great mercy to a great sinner and enemy of Jesus. Pick it back up in verse 7. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. And so they led him by the hand and brought him, led him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Verse 7 describes this encounter as not just a subjective dream, but an objective reality. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. That's actually how Moses described God's appearance at Sinai in Deuteronomy 4.12. The Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. There was only a voice. So the way Luke is narrating this, the way Jesus himself is setting it up, it's reminding you, it's notifying you, hey, this is what theologians call a theophany. This is an appearance of God. This is the same God who appeared at Sinai, according to Deuteronomy 4.12. So Luke is narrating this as an appearance of God in Christ, and it is happening to Saul in a way that he would understand from his own knowledge of the Old Testament as an appearance of God. Lightning flashing and everything, just like it did at Sinai. but now in the person of Jesus. Saul gathers himself up off the ground, but when he opens his eyes, he can't see anything. The one who thought he saw so clearly, clearly enough to commit murder, cannot see now in front of his own nose. And so it is with an ironic twist and a wry grin that Luke says, they led him by the hand and literally led him into Damascus. How'd this whole thing start? Why is Saul going to Damascus? Because he wants to lead Christians back to Jerusalem to prosecute them for blasphemy. And now, who's doing the leading and who is being led? This is a reversal. The leader has become the led. The one who thought he was so seeing is blind and has to be led by others. And he spends three days without sight, without food and without drink. He is fasting blind. It is almost like a mini death. He can't see anything, can't taste anything, can't drink anything, can't eat anything. As if he's in the darkness of a grave for three days. Hmm. Now, if Jesus is going to convert Saul, then Saul is going to have a hard time convincing any Christians in Damascus that he's switching sides with the way he's treated them. I mean, think about if this had happened today with someone who was beating down the door of our church trying to arrest you for being a Christian and haul you off to downtown Chicago for prosecution. And now all of a sudden, that guy, that same guy, is like, I've been saved, I've seen the light. And I'm coming to your church. So will you teach me the gospel? And you'd be like, uh, do we have somebody with a concealed carry permit here? Just in case. So Jesus prepares a Christian in Damascus to help Saul. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. Almost reminds you of Samuel's calling in 1 Samuel 3 or Isaiah in Isaiah 6. Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. Now, I don't know who this Judas is, 
or where his house is, what kind of house he had, whether he was a Christian or not, or how God prepared that Judas to meet Saul. I don't know. But God does prepare Ananias by telling him that this Saul has seen a vision of Ananias himself. Now that would be very comforting. Maybe even necessary for a guy like Ananias, a Christian like Ananias, to meet a man like Saul. I mean, it might be the only thing that would convince you, okay, he's had a vision and he's seen me. Okay, I think I can do this. (laughs) He has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Ananias, as a Christian, needed to hear that. Otherwise, he's not going to trust Saul any further than he can throw him. Ananias sees a vision, tells him that Saul has also seen a vision, and Saul's vision was about Ananias himself. That's pretty clear. And it gives them even something in common. Isn't isn't that kind? Hey, I'm giving you a vision, Ananias, and your vision is about his vision. Ah, okay. I I think we're on the same page now. Still, Saul had struck fear in the hearts of Christians everywhere, Ananias included. So look there in verses 13 to 14. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. I mean, that's like the understatement of the century. I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Translation, what am I, crazy? I'm really glad you gave me that vision, but um, that helps, but uh, I don't have a death wish. Saul was a household name now even as far north as Damascus. Word on the street even there was that Saul had it in for Christians, and he had the authority to arrest and prosecute them for blasphemy even in Damascus. He had the paperwork to prove it. And now I'm supposed to go heal this Saul of some kind of blindness? At somebody's house that I don't know? What do I, have a death wish? But in verses 15 and 16, the risen Christ doesn't budge at this objection. Not good enough, Ananias. (laughs) I know how you feel, but go. Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. That's the first comfort. I have chosen him. I don't care how scared you are of him. I'm not scared of him. I have chosen him. He's mine now. I've chosen him in a special way for a special purpose, a special post. Jesus knows what he's doing and what he's going to do with Saul. What's more, verse 16, Jesus says, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I am turning the tables on this man, Ananias. The one who caused all of the suffering will now be the one to suffer for me. Jesus is singling out Saul, subduing Saul, so that Saul will now serve and suffer for the name of Jesus. And those two replies calm Ananias' fears enough for him to go meet this Saul who had made a name for himself by ravaging the churches. Then in verses 17 and 19. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, mm, brother, to Saul, brother Saul. (laughs) I mean, I think if you're Ananias, you're like, I'm not even... Sure, those words just came out of my mouth. I can't believe I just said this. I can't believe I just prayed this. Brother Saul. Never thought I would put those two words together about this man. And look at the staccato verbs. Pop, 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 all in one row. Departed, entered, laying on hands, he said. Quick obedience. 
Ananias even calls him brother. That's a recognition of Christian identity and welcoming into Christian fellowship of the leading critic and oppressor of Christians. No ill will, no reserve, no fear, apparently no waiting for Saul to make the first move either. He doesn't go in and interrogate Saul or test him. At least that's not what is recorded. Ananias trusts God's word about Saul and acts on the basis of that trust with no further demands of, of assurances. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he arose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened. So Ananias tells Saul, they now have Christ in common. You and I, we're on the same team, we're in the same family now. You're my brother. The Jesus who appeared to you, appeared to me. We have him in common. And he sent me to you to help you see, physically and spiritually. And then he's baptized, which indicates full acceptance into Christ's body, the church. And so it was that the greatest persecutor of Christianity became its greatest preacher and church planter. The one breathing murder is now filled with the breath of life himself. The one who had authority to arrest is now himself arrested and converted and commissioned by the Spirit of God to publish the gospel of grace. And the one who orchestrated and accomplished all of it is the risen Lord Jesus, not the apostles. The point of this narrative is that Jesus has authority to care for his church by converting his enemies. Jesus has authority to care for his church by converting his enemies. The church is protected by Jesus before Saul ever gets to Damascus. They don't have to suffer because of him. Because Jesus converted him. Saul is the one who had the paper and the power. He had the authority, Ananias said. I've heard of this man. He has authority from the priests to arrest us and prosecute us. And Jesus overrules Saul's authority and turns him around. Not only in direction, but in his whole life. So here's a few things we need to think differently and do differently and feel differently as a result of understanding Saul's conversion. First of all, we need to understand and believe and trust. Jesus has all authority and power. Just like he told us at the Great Commission in Matthew 28. All authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I don't care what the priests are doing. I don't care what Saul is doing. I don't care what authority they can give him or he can exercise. All authority has been given to me. And when I want to take back that authority that I delegated to him or that he had from someone else, I'm going to take it back. Because it's mine to begin with. Because there is no authority that is not given by Jesus. Jesus has all authority and power, and therefore we should trust and obey Him. 
Saul may have had authority from the, pre from the priests, but Jesus has authority from God himself. Because Jesus is the Son of Man, and God has given him glory, power, and a kingdom. So Saul may have been a leader in his own right, but as Peter preached in Acts 5.31, God has appointed Jesus leader and Savior. Jesus has the right and the authority to lead Saul because Jesus created Saul and because Jesus wanted to recreate Saul, redirect Saul, and redeploy him for gospel purposes. Now, Christian, if Jesus has that kind of authority to convert even that kind of a person, then we should trust and obey him when he calls us to do things and say things for his purposes and for his plans and for his cause and for his gospel in the world to people that we fear. We should trust Jesus' authority and power to convert whomever he will, no matter how staunchly they oppose him now. We should be hopeful evangelists. We should be faith-filled preachers. We should be bold disciple-makers. You should not fear what other people will think of you, say of you, or do to you if you speak the gospel to them. Because Jesus can do this to Saul. And we should be hopeful and faith-filled, not because we are anything, or because of what we see in other sinners that we think makes them savable. We should be hopeful and bold because Jesus has all authority and power to convert and commission whomever He will. So let's think and pray that way as a local church and see what Jesus might do in the lives of even hostile men and women around us. Another application is that Jesus identifies with his church, and therefore we should too. Jesus identifies with his church, and therefore we should too. Jesus did not ask Saul, Why are you persecuting my people? Why are you persecuting people who believe in me? Why are you persecuting my church, my disciples, my followers? No, Jesus asked Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus takes it personally when people wrong his church. And that's not just a metaphor. It's real. Because of our union with Christ. He does take it personally. You cannot hurt and wrong the church without Jesus taking it as abuse of himself. You cannot undermine a Christian's faith without Jesus taking it personally as unbelief in him and violence done to him. To persecute Christians is to persecute Christ, and that is according to Christ himself. This is what it means. This is what it looks like for Jesus to consider his church his body. When we suffer, he doesn't just feel for us, he feels with us. And if Jesus identifies that closely with his body, the church, then we should too. If we ourselves identify with Jesus, then we should identify ourselves with his visible body by joining a local church in membership. You are Christ's body and individually members of it, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12. The New Testament simply does not have a category for someone who is united to Christ spiritually, but not united to his body, the visible church. Why not? It's because Jesus himself is united to his body. 
If you are invisibly united to Jesus in your heart, then he thinks you should be visibly united to him in a local church. It's the whole structure of the gospel, the indicative, that which is already true of you in the gospel, your union with Christ, I am united with Christ. That is the indicative, drives the imperative, I should join a local church to make my invisible union with Christ visible with his visible body. He committed to me, and now I commit to him. He committed to me visibly and physically in the cross, in the grave, in the resurrection. Now I commit to him visibly, physically, tangibly in my commitment to doing the one another's of the Christian life with a particular gathering of God's people in a visible local church. That's the logic of the gospel. It's the logic of union with Christ. And look at this. Jesus does not hold the visible church at arm's length, even with all its sufferings, hypocrisies, inconsistencies, sorrows, hurts, and sins. Why are you persecuting me, he says, of the church where Ananias and Sapphira had to be disciplined? But if that is the case, Christian, if Christ identifies with his imperfect, sinful, hypocritical, self-pitying local churches, then why are you calling yourself a Christian and yet keeping the church at arm's length? Not good enough for you? Well, they're not good enough for Jesus either, but that doesn't make him stay away. He identifies himself. Jesus is too good for the church. And he identifies with the church. You are not too good for the church. Not to put too fine a point on it. You are not too good for the church. Jesus is too good for you. And yet, look at him identifying himself with the sinfulness and sorrows of his people. Isn't that why he remained on the cross to represent us, to identify with us in our sinfulness. Isn't that why he was baptized by John the Baptist? To identify with his people in their need for repentance and cleansing, even though he had no need of that himself. And now you say, well, you know, I, I love Jesus, but I'm not really crazy about the church. Yeah, Jesus could have said that too. But he didn't. He didn't say that. And you're the better for it. The theological ground of local church membership is the happy union of Christ with his visible, imperfect, suffering people. To be united with Jesus, then, is to be united with his visible body, the church, because there is no Jesus that you can be united with who isn't united to his church. You join him, you join his church. You, you, it's a package deal. Take it or leave it. The truth of your invisible union with Jesus should drive you to the complementary obedience of visible union with his body and to let that spiritual union with Christ's church remain invisible. To let your spiritual union with Christ's church remain invisible. That, that is hypocrisy. You're the hypocrite. If you say, I'm united to Jesus' body, praise God, I, I love my intimacy with Jesus. And you have no care to commit to a local church, invisible church membership, that's hypocritical. Whatever you may criticize 
the church. You say you love Jesus, the church is his visible body, yet you consider yourself above uniting yourself to his visible body. What is that if, not, if it's not hypocrisy? So as much as you want to use the hypocrisy of the church as the reason for not uniting yourself to it, you're going to fit right in. <laughs> you're going to fit right in. You are just as hypocritical to say you love Jesus and then avoid any tangible commitment to his visible body. doesn't work like that. And notice, Jesus knew us before we ever knew him. Isn't that comforting to you? Jesus knew you before you ever cared to know him. It's true of Saul and it's true of you. Jesus calls Saul by name twice before Saul even knows who's talking to him. Who are you, Lord? You seem to know me, but I don't know who you are. I don't recognize your voice. And this is the true order of salvation. It's not that I go seeking for Jesus because I'm such a good person, and I find him because I looked in the right place, and he was so pleased that I was looking for him that he said, Ah, oh, you got me. Way to go, man. Glad you came. Glad you showed up. No. It's that Jesus comes seeking for me and finds me when I don't even know to look for him. In fact, when I'm actively working against his purposes, not only in my life, but in the lives of other people. It's not that I begin to know Jesus in hopes of, no of him knowing me. It's that he knows me so that I come to know him. That's the order. Jesus must reveal himself to us before we are able to respond to him. He must tell us who he is. God must shine into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we remain in willful ignorance and darkness about him. He shows us God's blinding truth and holiness and our darkness and blindness in our sin. He makes us admit, I am blind. I don't know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the Bible and Jesus and God and the world and creation. I don't know what I'm talking about. I can't see in front of my face. He brings you to that. So that you have to be led instead of acting like you're the leader. He shows us that we are living in our own graves and we are headed to hell under the condemnation of his righteous wrath for our own sins. And he changes us. He changes our minds, changes the direction of our whole lives, shines a whole new light on everything that we are and do. And he does that so that we change. He does that today through the reading and proclamation of his word from Scripture. So if you are hearing this, that's a great sign. Jesus wants to know you. Because look, he's revealing himself to you in his word right now. He's introducing himself to you. This is how I initiate with people. I take them by the lapel and I wake them up from the dead. I change the whole direction of their lives in a moment. So Jesus is the one who initiates and accomplishes conversion. And that means it's not the evangelist or the preacher who initiates and accomplishes conversion, much less the convert himself. Jesus has all authority to convert and commission whomever he will, even his most vitriolic enemies. Not me, not the other elders, not you as an evangelist at work or in your home or at school or at, at, in your neighborhood. Jesus does not have to wait for enemies to make the first move towards him. He doesn't have to wait. He didn't wait with Saul. Saul was moving not just away from Jesus, Saul was moving against Jesus. 
And Jesus became Saul's leader, not because Saul invited Jesus into his life. Not because Saul surrendered voluntarily. That's not what's happening in Christian conversion. Jesus doesn't leave it up to you. Jesus doesn't wait for you to make the move. He's not impotent. He's not just a responder. He is an initiator. He is a converter. Not just a recipient of people who begin liking him. Conversion is not something you do. Conversion is something that happens to you. God does it to you. Jesus does something to you. And you are different as a result. And only, only He can make it happen. And what Jesus does to Saul is a gracious version of what God did to Sennacherib, king of Assyria, in Isaiah 37, 29. Now that was a judgment. This is a salvation. But listen to what He did to Sennacherib, king of Assyria, when he was attacking Judah. Here's how God talks to people who are working against him by working against his people. Isaiah 37, 29. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. <laughs> That'll singe your eyebrows. Gonna put my hook in your nose? God talks like that? God talks like that. That's in the Bible. You can read that. Isaiah 37, 29. Maybe that should be your life verse for a while. That's the God of the Bible. That's how God converts. That's how God judges. He just does it. He's not impotent. He's not waiting around. He's not looking at his watch and going, why doesn't he respond? I wish he'd respond. I'm running late, man. He doesn't do that. He gets to it. God does not procrastinate. And here in Saul's case, it's the same kind of reversing, but for salvation, not for judgment. It's a redirecting, overruling power that's at work, but now for grace and mercy in the life of Saul. You will go your own direction no longer. You will now go in the direction I set for you. You will no longer mistreat and attack my people. You will no longer work against me. You will now submit to my power, serve my plan, suffer for my name. I will now harness you. You will no longer trample on my people like a wild horse. I'm going to put my harness on you, and you're going to pull my plow. You will pull for me, not against me. Now I ask you, reader of the Bible, who is giving the Bible an honest hearing, where is the request for Saul's permission? Where is the respect for Saul's pseudo-autonomous free will? If God had respected Saul's pseudo-autonomous free will, Saul would never have become Paul. And Acts... Let's stop in chapter 9, or maybe 10. Conversion to Christianity does not work like conversion to Mormonism, or Islam, or Buddhism, or Hinduism, or any other world religion. You don't just decide to become one by your own preference or will. You're not just at the airport one day and, you know, you're filling out something or religion. Well, I, just, I think I'll just call myself a Christian now. You don't just simply identify as a Christian. You don't do that. That's done for you by Jesus. Jesus identifies you as a Christian. You know, there's all sorts of stuff with identity politics these days. People identify with all sorts of crazy things that aren't them. Right? 
I identify as this, I identify as that. I, I want to identify as a 6'9 NBA player. I, I kind of do identify like that in my heart. I don't tell anybody that usually, but I do. But if I told somebody that, they'd be like, um, yeah, whatever. You keep believing that. That's, that's special. You don't do that. That's not how you become a Christian. God, God makes Christians. Jesus makes Christians. The main thing in conversion is not that you invite him in. He doesn't wait for an invitation. That verse in Revelation 3 about I stand at the door and knock, that's to people who are already Christians. That's not to non-Christians. That's to a church. And in fact, Jesus can't wait because a heart dead in its sin can make no invitations. I have yet to be invited to the grave of a person who is already dead. What Jesus did for Saul is a concrete instance of Ezekiel 37, 12, the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. The whole house of Israel says, Our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. But God says, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. Conversion is not, I stand at the door and knock. If any man opens to me, I will come into him. Conversion is Jesus digging up your grave, prying open your coffin, and breathing the breath of life into your cold, dead corpse. That's conversion. It requires regeneration. And then you stand up with his breath in your lungs and you say with a new heart that he has given you, I repent of everything I used to be. And I don't know how I was living like that. And I don't know how I started talking like this. But now I'm alive. And I'm alive to the things of God in Christ. And I love those things and I prioritize those things and I gravitate towards those things and I incline towards them. And I no longer want the things that I used to want. And the world is no longer an attraction to me. So we should pray to Jesus for converts. Because he's the only one that can produce them. And we should do evangelism. We should clarify the gospel and leave the results to Jesus. Because God gives people new life in Christ by breathing out the message of his life-giving word, the gospel. We don't produce converts. Jesus produces converts. And that frees us from pressure, it frees us from guilt, and it frees us from despair in evangelism. And it gives our evangelism hope that Jesus will invade people's lives and call them to himself. You see the logic. Many of us have it mixed up. It's not that, well, evangelism is useless because only Jesus can convert anybody. And if he's going to convert anybody, then he'll do it. No. It's that evangelism is useless if God doesn't convert anybody because mere evangelism without the power of the Spirit will not convert anybody. And so we proclaim the gospel to everyone we can and we pray that he would lead us to those people whose hearts he is working to change or will work to change. And notice too, Jesus delights to forgive even the worst sinners. He delights to forgive even the worst sinners. Sinner, that can be you today. No matter how you've treated Jesus and his church in the past, and Christian, don't give up hope for the conversion of your most antagonistic friends and family members. Saul was as hostile as they come. Arresting Christians, hauling them off to jail, threatening them with judicial murder. Yet look at how merciful Jesus is to him. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but... What a merciful, patient, gracious contrast. Jesus would not let Saul's rebellion have the last word, even though Saul had been the leader of the anti-Christian movement. Church, you and I must be merciful to antagonistic sinners. Like Jesus was to Saul right here. 
We cannot convert them, but we can be kind to them. We can hold out the offer of grace and repentance for reconciliation to God. We seek mercy for them, and once they repent, we can show them the forgiveness that Jesus showed them. We overcome our fear to welcome them like Ananias did, and we incorporate them into the church as the church did in Damascus when they baptized Saul. Conversion ends our previous life in sin in order to begin a new life in Christ. You're never the same once you become a Christian. You're not the same. You can't be. You're in Christ now. Saul was three days blind and fasting. It was as if God had put him in a dark grave to mark the end of his previous life in spiritual darkness. And when he sees the light of day, the eyes of his heart are enlightened as well to the things of God in Christ. It's night and day for Paul. It may not be that stark for everyone, but there is a change, whether it's gradual or immediate, whether it's boring or whether it's dramatic. Our pre-Christian lives are often marked by one of two selfish directions. We are either guided by self-indulgence in our sins or by self-righteousness, self-vindication, self-justification in defense of the proposition, I am a good person. When we're converted, though, we die to our self-indulgence and we die to our self-righteousness. That death to the old self is what frees us for fruitful ministry. Jesus replaced Saul's spirit of self-righteous anger with his own spirit of holiness and truth. It's filled with the Spirit. Saul was so sure he was serving God by arresting and killing Christians. He was a rising star in Judaism, young and energetic, conservative, Notice, Saul was a hyper-conservative. He was convictional. He was a purist. He was even militant. He was ready to crush any movement that contradicted the oneness of God, but his anger did not accomplish God's righteousness. Friend, I wonder what you are angry about. What are you angry about? What do you think deserves to die? Who do you think deserves to die and why? This is what Saul was thinking. You guys deserve to die. Maybe you can quote a Bible verse about someone you think deserves to die for what they do and how they live their lives and who they are. Whether that's in their sin or self-righteousness. I'm sure Saul had a lot of verses to quote. But God was not interested in the self-righteous anger that drove Saul's threats. All that emotion, all that confidence, all that energy and zeal and leadership, charisma, and it was totally misguided. Look at how wrong we can be even when we're confident that we're right. It's not that being right is impossible, but for our old self outside of Christ, our confidence is often rooted in wrong views of reality, self, God, truth, and rightness itself. But thankfully, Jesus can make former persecutors willing to endure persecution themselves for his sake. The Lord told Ananias that Saul would discover how much he himself will now have to suffer for the name of Jesus. In contemporary politics, the oppressed often become the oppressors. Here, it's the opposite. The one causing the suffering is now going to suffer with and for Jesus. And although Paul will not seek suffering out, and sometimes he will take measures to avoid it, he shows no hint of resenting it or rebelling against it. Paul grew to love Jesus so much that his loyalty to Jesus made suffering no obstacle to his own obedience. The light and grace Jesus showed to Paul right here on the road to Damascus heightened and brightened Paul's heart for the rest of his life. He knew 
that he was suffering for a Christ who had first suffered for him. He knew he was suffering for a Christ whom he first made suffer. Suffering was part of God's God-given calling to Paul. So friends, we need to get this straight. Yes, Saul was a chosen instrument. He was special, unique, apostolic, and that led him to more suffering, though, not less. The honor of bearing Jesus' name to kings and nations requires the humility that is only instilled through suffering. It's kind of like when Peter and or James and John ask Jesus, hey, can we sit one on your right, one on your left when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus, I don't know what he did, but it seems like that would have been a moment that he would have raised his human eyebrows. <laughs> because he asked them a, an eyebrow-raising question. Are you able to be baptized with the baptism I'm about to be baptized with? Because that's the only way it's going to happen suffering before glory. There is such a thing as glory and honor for a Christian, but the way to Christian glory is almost always through suffering, not around it. And that is how it was for Jesus. The servant is not greater than the master. To follow a suffering Christ is to be a little Christ yourself in your suffering. So friends, ministry in the name of a suffering Christ almost always involves some kind of suffering or sacrifice for him. So count the cost before you put yourself forward as an elder or a deacon or as an evangelist or as a seminary student or as a pastor or teacher. Saul was special, that's true. He was a chosen instrument, not only for proclamation, but for the suffering that the proclamation would bring with it. Saul would know not only the power of Jesus' resurrection, he would know the fellowship of Christ's sufferings to a unique extent. Christ would make sure of it. But suffering will be required of all of us to some extent. And that should not disillusion you about the Christian life. It should draw you into a special kind of fellowship with Jesus, the fellowship of his sufferings. Some of you have already suffered to some extent for your loyalty to Christ. Your relationships have either been lost or severely strained. Your earning potential may have been trimmed. Ministry has taken you away from your family in the evenings or on weekends. You've sacrificed money, time, energy, maybe even reputation in some contexts. You've been rejected in evangelistic conversations for the sake of Jesus. Maybe you've lost a job or just been told not to bother to apply for it in the first place. That's not necessarily because he did something wrong. Paul would suffer tremendously, and not because he was foolish or inexperienced. So, brother, sister, if you're suffering in some way for your loyalty to Jesus, in some relationship, for the proclamation of his name, then consider it a privilege and endure it like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Know when to cut bait, like Paul did occasionally. He got let down from a couple windows on a rope made a run for it. He'll do that soon by the end of chapter 9. Moves from city to city because he's, not a, not, because he's not a glutton for punishment. But sometimes suffering is unavoidable for a Christian. And when it is, Jesus will make it worth it to you in the end. He promises. But, but, if your Christianity has never cost you anything, then what's it really worth? Jesus gives new converts new eyes to see new things in old scriptures. When the scales fell from, Jesus, from Saul's eyes, he saw more than just Ananias. There's a symbolism here to light and sight. Jesus blinded Saul with the light of his holiness and truth and power in order to make him feel his own need for new eyes. And Jesus did, in fact, give Saul new eyes on Jesus himself, scripture, sin, salvation, everything. This is the beginning of Saul becoming Paul, who preached Jesus from the Old Testament. Friend, if the Bible is a mystery to you, Jesus can open your eyes to its emphasis, meaning, and significance. Start asking of whatever passage you're reading, how does this testify to Jesus? It'll open up to you. 
So pray that Jesus would open Scripture to you. Pray that he keeps on doing it for us together as a church. And let's especially pray that he does it for our unbelieving friends and neighbors and co-workers around us. Let's pray that Jesus gives more unbelievers new eyes to see new things about Jesus in the Scriptures that used to confuse them. And finally, Jesus sends new converts to get help from other Christians in local churches. Where did Jesus send Saul? To a Christian in a church that would baptize him. That's where he sent him. Friend, for all of your spiritual romanticism about me and Jesus, Christianity is inescapably corporate and ecclesial. It's churchy. What is Jesus doing? What is Paul doing for the rest of the narrative in Acts? Planting churches, raising up pastors, appointing for them elders in every city. You can't have Christianity without the church. Jesus made sure that the Apostle Paul started his whole Christian life in the context of a local church that could open his eyes to things in Scripture and baptize him in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Lord wants to send other new believers into churches like this one where we can help them train their new eyes on Scripture. We don't need dreams from heaven to do that. We need to be trained to see Jesus in all of Scripture for ourselves so that we can help others see Jesus in all of Scripture for themselves. And some of you are already doing that. If you've never done that for a new believer, pray that the Lord would bring someone here so you can help them see Jesus for who He really is. We want to be a church full of men and women just like Ananias, not full of men and women who are seeing visions all the time, but people who overcome their fear of people who used to be hostile to Jesus in order to help them understand how to become incorporated into the new people of God by faith in Jesus, repentance from sin, and baptism into the local church. The Apostle Paul was not above it, and neither are you. Friends, I hope we've seen from this passage in Acts 9, it's far less about Saul than it is about Jesus. Jesus is the main character in Saul's conversion. Jesus is performing all the action, choreographing all the movements, orchestrating this whole symphony of God's plan for the spread of the gospel through the future ministry of this former enemy. It's Jesus' power subduing Saul's rebellion. It's Jesus' authority giving light and life, overruling Saul's authority to arrest and kill. It's Jesus superintending every intention, even of his most virulent enemies. Jesus. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. Jesus is the one who accomplishes our death to sin and resurrection to new life. He's the one who gives us, gives us new eyes. Jesus gives us a new commission to proclaim his name in our own spheres of influence. He's the one who calls us not only into the power of his resurrection, but into the fellowship of his sufferings. And as Saul's own prior life proves, there's no one too sinful or too self-righteous for Jesus to save. In fact, if Jesus saves Saul, then what's to say he won't save you? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are the powerful one. You are the one who sees. You are the one who has light. You are the giver of life. You are the one who raises us from our graves and calls us your people and bids us do your work to your praise and to your glory. And so we pray, would you do that for more and more men and women around us? Do that for our children. Do that for people we don't yet know. Do that for people that we've been praying for for months and years. And bring them here with new eyes 
and a new heart for the things of Christ. Do this for your glory that you might have such people to worship you in spirit and in truth as trophies of your grace. For your sake we pray. Amen.